And Joseph and I have been looking forward to this series. Believe it or not, we've been talking about a series on Leviticus for over a year. And we've had many a late night conversations about the rich biblical theology that emerges from the first five books of the Bible and, and Leviticus in particular. And actually, I realized to add um, more confusion, I, I wanted to open this time in prayer. And so let me do that. Father, anoint this time of preaching. All the preparation in the world is mere folly unless your Spirit uses these words as the instrument of your sovereign work. And so, Spirit of God, use this message to build your church. In Christ's name, amen. Now, Leviticus might stretch your traditional expectations for a sermon in that so much of the application that will be drawn out of this book isn't go off and do these things, but rather through Leviticus, we will grow in our understanding of how the whole Bible holds together as a single message. And we will penetrate to greater depths the mind and the heart of God. And we will worship with greater awe and gratitude at what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do in the future. Now, to begin this, I have to acknowledge that we're standing on the shoulders of faithful men. We are indebted to a man by the name of L. Michael Morales, whose book on the biblical theology of Leviticus, published as part of D.A. Carson's series on biblical theology, feeds the soul in ways I cannot communicate. I'm also indebted to Clayton Keenan, uh, then a graduate student at Wheaton College, whose chapel message on the book of Leviticus that I first heard about three years ago utterly transformed my understanding of this book, if not the Pentateuch as a whole. And I'm indebted to Professor Ray Lubeck, uh, whose Old Testament class I took at Western Seminary instilled a passion for biblical theology and deepened my awe of Yahweh's sovereign work across the pages of redemptive history. And I trust you will benefit from these faithful men. And my hope is to share this passion with you as we, in, uh, as we penetrate the book of Leviticus. Now, before we actually engage the text of Leviticus, we need to prepare ourselves to do so. In fact, these first three messages I've prefaced as the prelude to Leviticus. In one sense, it's the series before the series. The first three messages will serve as an extended introduction to Leviticus. Now, by introduction, I don't mean a mere collection of facts similar to what you might find on the introductory page of your study Bible, but rather I'm talking about recovering a deeper dive into what's happening in the biblical storyline by the time we reach the book of Leviticus. Now, you wouldn't think of walking into a movie halfway through and expect to understand and appreciate all that's going on, and so too with the Leviticus, or any book of the Bible for that matter. Throughout our series, some of what you hear might already be familiar to you, some of it might be new, but this series, but this will be a series that requires your attention and your thought. Okay, so I'm going to ask you to put on your thinking caps. Okay, it's going to be going to be, there'll be some challenges. But I want to remind you that in addition to the audio version 
to today's message posted to our sermon website, both the slides that I'll use as well as the full text of this message and the messages that follow in the next couple of weeks will be posted as well. And so that might, uh, that might be helpful to some. Well, let me begin with the question, when is the last time you heard a sermon series on the book of Leviticus, let alone a sermon, right? Admittedly, this is a bit of a heavy lift. I mean, after all, as one speaker noted, Leviticus doesn't exactly wear its relevance on its sleeve, right? And it stretches our notion of what Paul meant when he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, when he wrote, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. How does this work with the book of Leviticus? I mean, let's face it. Leviticus is challenging. None of us have need for a working knowledge of the procedures for sacrificing bulls, goats, rams, or grains. None of us are preoccupied with a diet that demands the distinction between the clean and the unclean. Moms, I'm going to go out on a limb here, but I'm reasonably confident that none of you agonized about purification rites the last time you gave birth. And I can say with near certainty that few, if any of you, are concerned about the examination and ritual purification of various skin maladies. And even less of you are likely concerned about the ritual purification of your home from mold and mildew. Leviticus is largely procedural discourse, providing specific instructions for how sacrifices were to be administered, how the priests were to administer their duties, when and how Israel was to celebrate their feasts and other matters of civil behavior. In other words, Leviticus is mostly a how-to manual. And this perspective might help the next, or that might help, it might help us be more patient with its tedious nature. Nevertheless, what do we do with this book? In what sense is this God's word to us today? Right? How do we overcome the tedium of a book whose content seems so distant and seemingly irrelevant to our contemporary situation, especially our situation as New Covenant believers? Well, we're going to talk about four things this morning. We're going to make four points. First, we're going to talk about the theology of the Pentateuch. And then we're going to look at the literary structure of the Pentateuch so that we can then understand with better clarity the literary structure of Leviticus. And as our last point, we'll talk about the theology of Leviticus. And then I'll share where we go from there by way of our introduction. Okay. <clears throat> now, we can't understand Leviticus in isolation of its surrounding literary context. Right? In order to understand the book of Leviticus... We have to understand how it fits within the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch, or what the ancient Hebrews called the Torah, right, which is often translated law or instruction. You see, the first five books of the Bible connect with each other in a very specific, very intentional way. They're meant to be read as an intact literary unit. And since the Pentateuch is meant to be read as an intact literary unit, None of the five books are designed to stand on their own. 
Because the first five books of the Bible are a single literary unit, the first five books of the Bible are also an intact theological unit. And so this means we can't fully understand the theology of any one book without understanding the, theo- the theological burden of the Pentateuch as a whole. Right? In other words, our understanding of the parts must be informed by our understanding of the whole. And it works the other way as well. Our understanding of the whole is shaped by our discernment of the parts. It's a back and forth activity and it pushes us to greater clarity and understanding. But this is the bottom line. The bottom line is if we want to recover the theological burden of the book of Leviticus, we have to recover the theological burden of the Pentateuch. Right? Now, in saying this, I need to clarify that we're not trying to be clever. We're not trying to find things in the text that the author didn't intend to communicate. We're not trying to be innovative. Right? We're not trying to find hidden meaning in the text, allegorical significance, or any, anything else foreign to the author's intent. Right? Rather, we're simply trying to recover the meaning of the text as the original audience would have understood it. Okay? And to, this, to do this, we want to appeal to the grammar and syntax of the original language in light of the worldview of the ancient Hebrews. Who, um, who, uh, in light of the world of the ancient Hebrews, who would have exposed, uh, who would have seen patterns of relationship, patterns of thought, and other items of emphasis that more deeply revealed Yahweh's intended disclosure of Himself and His actions. Something that would have been obvious to the original audience, but far more difficult for us in light of our separation in time language, and culture. And it will become increasingly evident through our sermon series on Leviticus that the primary theme and theology of the Pentateuch is this. It's Yahweh's initiative and action to open up a way for humanity to dwell in the divine presence. You're going to hear that a lot through this series. The primary theological burden of the Pentateuch is Yahweh's initiative and action to open a way for humanity to dwell in the divine presence. Right? If someone came up to you and said, summarize all that the Pentateuch says in one sentence and you have seven seconds to do it, go. This is what you would say. This summarizes the entire Pentateuch. Now, of course, this theme is set against the backdrop of God's goal of creation, that man would live in the presence of God, in the house of God, for the glory of God. Though threatened by sin, this is the unstoppable goal of redemption and the great promise held out before God's people, that dwelling in the divine presence is the only true source of joy and vitality of life. This is the unshakable conviction of the psalmist that we read in Psalm 16:11. You make me kn- you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Or Psalm 23, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of our Lord forever. Psalm 26 
O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Psalm 27, one thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I shall dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. In the coming weeks, we'll learn how this language about God's house, it isn't mere poetic color. This isn't about going to church, but it's a very intentional expression that speaks to the notion of literally, literally dwelling in the divine presence. But of course, all of this begs the question of how this could be possible. I mean, how could the idea of dwelling in the divine presence be anything but presumptuous hope for defiled, sin-festered creatures made from dust? I mean, considering that only the high priest had been allowed entrance into the Holy of Holies within the tabernacle and later the temple, and that only once a year, how is it that Israel could actually sing songs about dwelling in Yahweh's house forever, all the days of their life? This hope seems to be in tension with the reality of Israel's experience. In many ways, the driving question of Israel's entire temple system, and indeed life itself, is this very tension. And yet, the Scriptures describe a future. A future time when God Himself will dwell on the earth. There's a vivid description of this throughout the Psalms. Again, Psalm 2. As for me, I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. Or Psalm 43. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill, to your dwelling. Psalm 132. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. And the prophets speak of God's future dwelling on earth as well. Isaiah 11. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But now listen. Listen further to the burden of the psalmist. In Psalm 15, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Psalm 24, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in His holy place? This question, this question of ascending God's holy hill in order to enter His house and dwell in Yahweh's holy presence was probably sung by the ancient pilgrims traveling to the temple in Jerusalem during the annual pilgrimage festivals. And this question is often referred to among, among commentators and theologians as the gate liturgy. That is, who shall enter God's presence? Who shall stand on God's holy hill? Who shall ascend? Who can stand? Right? The gate liturgy is an ever-present echo that runs throughout the entire Pentateuch as well as the rest of the Bible. The dominating concern expressed by the gate liturgy is how humanity 
may come to dwell in the presence of God, the divine presence. Under the Mosaic Covenant, the way opened by Yahweh was through the tabernacle and later the temple and its priesthood and rituals, what we might refer to as the Levitical economy or the temple system. In fact, all of this prefigured the work of Christ who opened a new and living way into the house of God. Indeed, that God has finally and irrevocably made a way for humanity to dwell in the divine presence and thus restore man's created purpose was the goal of Jesus Christ taking our humanity and transgressions upon himself, of his suffering and of his resurrection and ascension. The theological burden of the Pentateuch then is about the theme of dwelling with God in the house of God and how this reality is finally made possible. And this theme comes to its sharpest focus in the book of Leviticus. Now at the moment, that might be hard to see. And that might be hard to believe. But over the course of the next couple of months, our prayer is that this will become increasingly evident. When we talk a little bit about the literary structure of the Pentateuch, we talked about the theology of the Pentateuch. Now we need to look at its literary structure. And I want to begin our journey down this path with an important observation. I want to stress that literary structure is an important clue to the writer's theological burden. See, to properly discern the author's intended meaning of Scripture, it's important that we pay attention to literary genre. And by this, I mean the style, the format, the rules with which meaning is communicated in a work of literature. I've already alluded to the idea of genre earlier when I mentioned that Leviticus is largely procedural discourse. Now, whether you realize it or not, you're already aware of genre differences when you read. Right? The rules you use to understand a detective novel are different than the rules you use when you're reading a cookbook. I mean, when you're reading a detective novel, you have a particular pattern and a set of expectations already wired in your mind. You know that there's likely a crime scene. There's probably a murder. You know that there's going to be a collection of witnesses. You know that there's going to be an investigator who somehow, someway is smarter than all the rest or sees things that other people don't see. And you know that more than likely, the most obvious suspect is probably not the actual uh, perpetrator. Right? You know how to engage the genre of detective fiction. You don't think the same way when you read your cookbook. When you read a cookbook, you know it's all about sequence and order and measurements you know that there's a critical difference between a teaspoon of something and a tablespoon of something. This is genre. This is the point of literary genre. There are different rules and ways we engage various types of literary patterns. Some of the common literary genres found in Scripture include discourse, poetry, wisdom, law, prophecy, and others. And often, a single book or literary unit is comprised of multiple genres. And that's certainly the case with the Pentateuch. But the prevailing genre of the Pentateuch is historic narrative. Now, by narrative, I mean the genre of storytelling. Right? The Pentateuch tells the story of how God created and delivered a certain people as part of God's larger purpose. 
It's also a historical story. That is, it's real history. It actually happened. But it's presented in the form of a story or narrative structure. It's not the same thing as a news report. It's more than just the brute facts of history. It's a narrative arrangement with characters, plot, and setting. And there's cycles of drama, tension, and resolution. All of this comes together in such a way to provide a divine interpretation of, of this historical story's plot line. And this divine interpretation is what I mean by the theological burden of the narrative. Okay? Now, in our Western mindset, we're accustomed to a narrative arrangement in which the thematic significance of the story is clarified at the end of the story. Okay, so for example, think Aesop's fables. The moral of the story is revealed at the end. Why did the tortoise win? And the, oh, I get it. Slow and steady wins the race. The rabbit or the hare was irresponsible. He was presumptuous. He was arrogant. Oh, it all makes sense. The, 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 the moral of the story or the thematic significance is revealed at the end. In ancient Near East Hebrew narrative, positioning the thematic significance of a story at the end is not the only way storytelling works. In ancient Near East Hebrew narrative, the thematic significance of a story can also be positioned at the very center of the narrative flow. Now, in this kind of structure, there's some kind of narrative symmetry that, that frames the center and draws our attention to the center, pointing to the center as the key to the author's message. And when we look carefully at the Pentateuch's literary structure, we discover that the Pentateuch's five-book sequence with Leviticus at the center is not incidental. In fact, quite the opposite. Contrary to our tendency to view the book of Leviticus as a collection of now irrelevant ceremonial procedures and other tedium, we discover that Leviticus is the structural and thematic center of the Pentateuch and in harmony with the design principle that form follows function. Guess what? Leviticus emerges as the theological center of the Pentateuch. Now, it's hard to exaggerate the significance of this. So let's look at some of the details. Structurally, the symmetry by which the books of Exodus and Numbers frame the book of Leviticus is undeniably intentional, as is the symmetry by which Genesis and Deuteronomy frame the Exodus-Leviticus-Numbers sequence. I've kept using this word framing. What do I mean by this idea of framing? Well, by framing, I mean that thematically, Numbers returns to and completes the themes of Exodus. And Deuteronomy returns to and completes the themes of Genesis. This symmetry is the author's way of pointing to Leviticus as the theological core of the Pentateuch. In other words, whatever is being communicated in Leviticus is at the heart of the entire Pentateuch message. So let's look at the structural and thematic symmetry of the Exodus-Leviticus-Numbers arrangement. In the first, some interesting 
facts, right? Which in and of itself won't carry the day. But as we look at everything else, it simply adds to the argument. In the original Hebrew language, in the original Hebrew language, Leviticus is the shortest book of the Pentateuch. Okay, in the original Hebrew, it is roughly 12,000 words. Okay, if you want to be exact, it's 11,950. Okay, almost exactly half of Genesis. Interestingly, Exodus and Numbers are nearly identical to each other in their length. They're both roughly 16,500 words. Now, as I said, that's not going to carry the day, but as we go through the rest of this, you're going to realize there is some sovereign intentionality by which these books are arranged, even down to things as word count. As I recently mentioned, Exodus and Numbers share many parallel themes. Both chronicle Israel's desert journeys. In Exodus, Israel leaves Egypt, journeys through the desert, and eventually rests at Sinai. In Numbers, Israel leaves Sinai, journeys through the desert, and eventually comes to the rest outside of the Promised Land. Both are preoccupied with the significance of the tabernacle. The second half of Exodus deals primarily with setting up the tabernacle. The first half of Numbers deals primarily with disassembling the tabernacle. Both books deal with apostasy and plagues. In both books, the dramatic tension of the narrative is organized around those hostile to Yahweh and his people. In Exodus, Israel's earthly adversary is Egypt, specifically Pharaoh and his, and his magicians. In Numbers, Israel's earthly adversary is primarily Moab, specifically Balak and Balaam. The themes of the firstborn and the Levites are significant in both books. In Exodus, God's judgment falls on the firstborn. In Numbers, God redeems the firstborn. That's where the ministry of the Levites comes from. These parallels frame the narrative of Leviticus, whose setting, events, and themes, by the way, have no parallel, but are utterly distinct to Leviticus. As already mentioned, there's a particular geographical movement through the Pentateuch. And this geographical movement emphasizes the significance of Leviticus. Let me explain that. Whereas Leviticus, whereas Exodus chronicles Israel's movement from Egypt to Sinai, and Numbers chronicles Israel's movement from Sinai to the plains of Moab, that's Israel's final station before crossing into the Promised Land, there's no geographical movement in Leviticus. In fact, Leviticus is the only book in the Pentateuch that takes place completely and exclusively at Sinai. Even more specifically, the book takes place at and in the Tent of Meeting, the very heart of Yahweh's divine presence among Israel. Another distinguishing feature of Leviticus is that there's actually very little narrative in the book. In fact, the narrative flow of the Pentateuch essentially pauses at Leviticus, whose content is largely comprised of God's speeches from the tabernacle. And so unlike Exodus and Numbers, both the geographical and narrative flow of the Pentateuch storyline comes to a screeching halt at the book of Leviticus. And so we see both structurally and thematically Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, it's, it's like a sandwich. 
Exodus and Numbers are like the bread which wraps either side of the meat, the most important part of the sandwich, which in this case happens to be Leviticus. So a better diagram that might help you see this is, is something like this. And I don't know, that might be a bit of an eye chart. I apologize. And I haven't yet addressed the themes of Leviticus that are listed up there, so we didn't talk about that yet. But hopefully this lets you see what, what commentators or scholars or theologians often call a chiastic structure. Okay, chiasm is just a fancy word for symmetry or the mere image, that, that, that the outside edges mirror each other and they're framing something in the center. And this parallelism, this mirroring, is intentionally designed to draw attention to the center. That's called narrative chiasm. Okay? You don't have to remember that, but that's what it's called technically. But you see it there. You can see Exodus and Numbers and those shared themes and how it's sort of framing the book of Leviticus. Now, in a similar fashion, Genesis and Deuteronomy frame the Exodus-Leviticus number sequence. Once again, emphasizing even more the Leviticus as theological center of the Pentateuch. Now, for the sake of time, I won't say much about the outer symmetry of these two books. Uh, But I will summarize by noting that within the overall flow of the Pentateuch, Genesis functions as the prologue and Deuteronomy functions as the epilogue. And the themes shared in both books include things like separation from the surrounding nations, Yahweh's blessing towards His people, and the land promises. In fact, another very vivid parallel is that both books end with blessing and death. Both books end with a patriarch blessing the twelve tribes before dying outside of the land. In Genesis, that patriarch is Joseph. And in Deuteronomy, that patriarch is Moses. In light of this framing symmetry and the unique content of Leviticus, many scholars and theologians affirm that the author of the Pentateuch is deliberately marking off Leviticus as a distinct section, and even more so, that Leviticus is at the very heart of the Pentateuch narrative. Now, if all of this is true, we we have to pause and consider this. Isn't it likely then that we've been greatly under-reading the book of Leviticus? If we relate to Leviticus simply as some obscure and confusing book that you force yourself to get through at least once a year to keep your annual reading plan on track, may I press the fact that you're at risk of missing the essential theological message of the Pentateuch. How can you grasp the intended theology of the Pentateuch if we fail to grasp the heart of its message as architected by the author of the Pentateuch? We've got to get past this book's tedium. We've got to recognize the significance of this book and steward it faithfully like any other aspect of God's Word. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the literary structure of Leviticus. Uh, so we've looked, you know, we, we, we've talked a lot about the Pentateuch, uh, its, its theological themes, its structure. We talked about, uh, and, and now I want to switch gears and talk about the literary structure of Leviticus itself. Now, similar to what we've observed with the structural and thematic arrangement of the Pentateuch, there's also a, a symmetry of arrangement to the book of Leviticus that gives us very sound reason to recognize chapter 16, the Day of Atonement as the central emphasis of the book. As we'll see in a moment, 
numerous scholars and theologians acknowledge that Leviticus is arranged into seven distinct sections, seven distinct sections or topics, with the Day of Atonement being one of those seven sections, chapter 16. Three of these sections or topics occur prior to chapter 16, and three of these topics or sections are arranged after. In other words, you can think of Leviticus as being comprised of two halves with chapter 16 serving as the fulcrum or the hinges between the two. There's also an undeniable parallelism between the topical content of the first three sections and the last three, which we'll review in a second. Once again, the structural and thematic observations point to chapter 16, the Day of Atonement, as the book's theological center. Let me show you that in a little bit more detail. So the very first half of Leviticus, chapters 1 through 15, deal primarily with the notion of how one is to approach Yahweh without being destroyed by Yahweh's holiness. Further observation reveals an emphasis upon the role of sacrificial blood in this approach. As we dive into more of the details, we see that in chapters 1 through 7, they describe the procedures for sacrifice. Chapters 8 to 10 set forth the institution of the priesthood and the inauguration of the temple system. And then chapters 11 through 15 introduce the notion of clean and unclean categories in daily life. And then we have chapter 16, which details the holiest ritual act of Yahweh's annual festival cycle for His people, the Day of Atonement. That is, at one whose emphasis is reconciliation through judgment and cleansing. The second half of Leviticus, chapters 17 through 27, now we're on the downward side of that pyramid, deals primarily with holiness. Now we often think of holiness as, as a duty, but as you'll discover, properly understood through the lens of Leviticus, holiness pertains more to the idea of, of a vitality and fullness of life. That is, an abundant life of joy with God in the house of God. Right? As we pursue holiness, we actually experience life. As we move away from holiness, we descend down into Sheol, into death. And so in the, in the mindset of the ancient Hebrews, in the mindset of the Pentateuch, holiness is less about what I need to do per se, and more about moving closer and closer to the source of life and vitality itself. Moving closer to the created purpose of my humanity. That's the idea of holiness that we'll see in Leviticus. Well, chapters 17 through 20 introduce the notion of holy and profane categories in daily life, and you can see how that parallels chapters 11 through 15, right, which talked about the concepts of clean and unclean. Chapters 21 through 22 set forth legislation about the priesthood, whereas in the parallel chapters 8 through 10, that was the establishment of the priesthood. And finally, chapters 23 through 27 detail the festivals, the sacred calendar, and other matters of holiness, paralleling the procedures for sacrifices that are presented in the first seven chapters. So you can see the parallelism there. 
And you can see those, those categories that move and converge towards chapter 16 as the pinnacle of Leviticus's structure. Now, there's some debate among scholars with regard to the precise literary structure of Leviticus. So there's some wiggle room in this arrangement. However, the widest consensus among scholars and theologians is that chapter 16 is both the literary and theological center of the book. As one writer writes, he said, the chapter itself is a microcosm of the book's ritual world. It is clearly the central pivot point of the book and any literary analysis must account for its importance in the structure and message of Leviticus. In addition to the thematic structure just described, another compelling piece of evidence that points to the intentional symmetry of Leviticus and the theological significance of chapter 16, the Day of Atonement, is the distribution of divine speeches that constitute the majority of the book. There are a total of 35 divine speeches that comprise Leviticus. That is, God speaking directly to Moses, Aaron, or both from God's presence in the tabernacle. Each of these divine speeches is marked by the introduction, the Lord spoke. The Lord spoke to Moses. The Lord spoke to Aaron. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. Go into your Bible study software and search on the phrase, the Lord spoke in Leviticus, and you're going to get 35 hits. Chapter 16 is one of those 35 speeches, which leaves 34 to account for. And guess what? Of these remaining 34 speeches, they are equally distributed on either side of chapter 16. There are 17 before, and there are precisely 17 after. Again, a symmetry that's drawing our attention to the center of this chiastic, of this narrative chiasm. Again, it's simply undeniable that the author of Leviticus structured the book and arranged the thematic flow of the content around chapter 16, thus pointing readers to the central significance of this chapter as a means of grasping the book's driving theological burden. And just to complete everything, I'll show you the next version of this slide, which just simply lifted the pyramid and set it on the base of the Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy framing that we talked about earlier. And what you have here is a high-level, succinct summary of the Pentateuch's literary structure with Leviticus, of course, at center. Now let's talk a little bit about the theology of Leviticus. So, just as our understanding of the Pentateuch's theological burden demands our understanding of Leviticus, the Pentateuch's theological center... So too, as you would expect, our understanding of Leviticus's theological burden demands our understanding of Leviticus 16, the book's theological center. In fact, it's not a stretch to say that a full understanding of Leviticus 16 is essential to an informed understanding of the Pentateuch, which, of course, is the theology that grounds the rest of the Bible. Again, dare I say, have we been under-reading the book of Leviticus? given the centrality of its importance, not just in the Pentateuch, but in establishing the very theology of the Scriptures at large. In setting forth the requirements and implications of Yahweh's dwelling with His people, Leviticus 16 in particular, and Leviticus in general, brings into crisp focus the tension of the gate liturgy that we discussed earlier. What we might refer to 
as the central theological dilemma of humanity's relationship with God. How does a holy God bring a defiled, rebellious people to dwell in His presence, to come to God's holy hill without the consuming fire of His holiness, destroying the very people He desires to dwell with? How does that happen? How does that actually work? Through the narrative storyline of the Pentateuch, we learn that man's most lethal threat, man's most lethal threat is God Himself. In fact, Adam and Eve's exile from the garden, Cain's banishment to the east, and even the scattering of the Babel tower builders in Genesis 11, these are not just acts of divine judgment and punishment, but these are also acts of divine mercy. Why? How can that be? Because God is pushing man further and further away from His divine presence lest humanity be consumed and destroyed. In Exodus 33.20, God tells Moses, He says, You cannot see My face, for man shall not see Me and live. The severity of God's holiness is made abundantly clear in the instructions God gave regarding the disassembly and transportation of the tabernacle. Aaron and his sons were to disassemble the veil and package all of the holy objects used in the service of the tabernacle, particularly those used inside the veil within the Holy of Holies. Once packaged, the Kohathites were charged with carrying these things. But listen to Yahweh's grave warning. In Numbers 4, Yahweh himself says, Let not the tribe of the clan of the Kohathites be destroyed from among the Levites. Well, how might that work? But deal thus with them, that they may live and not die when they come near to the most holy things. Aaron and his sons shall go in and appoint them each to his task and to his burden, but they shall not go in to look on the holy things even for a moment, lest they die. Lest they die by casting their eyes upon the holy things of Yahweh. We have no categories for this. God's holiness is lethal to the defiled, both bodily and eternally. Perhaps the most vivid expression of the threat that God's holiness is to the sinner, or I'm sorry, perhaps the most vivid expression of the threat that God's holiness is to the sinner occurs during Israel's encounter with Yahweh at Sinai. This is recorded in Acts 19 and 20. And the events of these chapters are so foundational to Israel's understanding of Yahweh that the rest of the Bible, all the way through Revelation, is constantly alluding to these images. In instructing Moses on how to prepare the people, God stresses the danger of His consuming presence. Listen to what God says in Exodus 19. He tells Moses, And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Continuing with his instructions to Moses, God's unapproachability becomes even more apparent as we read in verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. 
Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves. Why? Lest the Lord break out against them. You see, the people were at risk of Yahweh breaking out against their defilement and filth. God's holiness will consume the sinner. How will this work? How will Yahweh bring back into His presence the very people He desires to dwell with who themselves are defiled and thus otherwise consumed by His holy presence? How can this work? This is the gate liturgy, brothers and sisters. Who shall ascend Yahweh's holy hill? Who can be so presumptuous as to think they will stand and survive? This is the central theological dilemma of humanity. This is where the Gospel begins. Again in 1924, but do not let the priests, do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest He break out against them. Creating a situation in which sinful men and women were brought into the physical presence of God is an exceedingly dangerous prospect because it is the nature of God's holiness, His righteousness, His justice to break out against those defiled by unrighteousness. That's why we read in Deuteronomy 4, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Even at the end of Exodus 40, when the tabernacle is constructed and Yahweh's glory fills the temple, what initially looks like victory ends in tension and dilemma. For the glory of Yahweh indeed fills the temple, but even Moses himself, God's chosen mediator to the people, can't enter the temple because of Yahweh's glorious presence. Who shall ascend your holy hill, O Lord? The Day of Atonement detailed in Leviticus 16 is not hollow ritualism. Instead, it's the sovereign initiative of Yahweh to overcome His unapproachability among sinners, to overcome the lethal threat of His consuming holiness among an unclean and defiled people. In light of the Sinai event, chapter 16 brings into reality what Exodus 19 made unthinkable, that Yahweh's people could dwell in His very presence and live, and live. Thus, God's people become a radiant display of the wonder revealed in the burning bush of Exodus 3, dwelling amidst the burning fire of Yahweh's holiness and yet not consumed. See that connection? How is this accomplished? It's accomplished, brothers and sisters, through atonement. Through atonement. Yahweh opens a way to recover humanity from exile and restore the purpose of man's humanity. That is, to dwell in the presence of Yahweh for His glory. Or as one writer puts it, God's people in God's place for God's glory. You see, what chapter 16 makes so vividly clear is that it's the grace of substitutionary atonement that's at the very center of the temple legislation laid out in Leviticus. And it's the temple legislation laid out in Leviticus that's at the very heart of the Pentateuch storyline, an audacious storyline in which Yahweh reveals His settled commitment 
to rescue an exiled humanity from the crisis of sin. Yet, despite the fact that this, despite the fact that at this point in the biblical storyline, Leviticus 16 and the temple legislation uh, that, that displays man's deepest experience of Yahweh's presence, we discover that it's, it's yet still a fragile arrangement. There's still a tension. There's a sense in which the problem is not completely fixed. The Levitical economy or temple system provides us with a glimpse into something richer, something fuller, something yet more complete. Now, it's at this point that you might be tempted to think, but I already understand atonement. And I already see the connection to Christ. Perhaps. But more fully understood, Leviticus confronts us with something more than simply the brute facts of atonement. As we come to understand precisely how Yahweh has disclosed Himself and His saving purpose across the narrative flow of the Pentateuch and the progressive theological burden that unites these books, we are drawn more deeply, more deeply, brothers and sisters, into the mind and heart of God Himself. God Himself. This is the great hope of our time in Leviticus. This is the burden that motivated your elders to draw your attention to this book. That we would grasp the mind and heart of God in ways that have eluded us in the past. As we delve into the theology of Leviticus, it will equip us with a richer understanding of the theology of the Pentateuch and even the whole Bible. And in this way, we're granted more texture and color with which we see the gospel of Jesus Christ and seeing the gospel of Jesus Christ with greater color and texture is what propels you and I to greater worship, greater joy, greater fruitfulness. So I pray that in the coming weeks you would hunger to know more about this unique book as you hunger to dwell upon the mountain of God, to dwell amidst Yahweh's holy presence. Lord, Father, use this book in the coming weeks, in the coming months. Use its place in the Pentateuch. Use what you have sovereignly disclosed of your personhood, your actions and saving initiative. Use that, Father, to reveal more of your glory. Strengthen our understanding of the gospel. Lord, awaken a greater sense of worship as we gaze at the privilege of what it means to be your image bearers, redeemed and plucked out of Adam's lost race and brought back into the, a new race, a new humanity, under a new Adam, a people recovered from exile and brought to dwell among your holy hill. Lord, as we see the profound, audacious reality of that and recognize that apart from your sovereign initiative and action, we would have no hope, no hope, but to be doomed into a crisis of judgment, doomed to be confronted by Your holy rage. So, Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to praise You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.